Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping the Lord in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been imprisoned, that I might make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Now, Holy Father, we think of the Apostle Paul imprisoned, and yet his heart reached out for the call that you placed on his life to be able to find open doors of opportunity, even in that prison, to share the good news and to make it clear. And that's our heart's prayer today. We recognize that you've called not just men like Paul and preachers and evangelists, but everyone that truly knows Christ, you've commissioned us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. We know you use us in many different and profound ways, but we ask that you would equip us further today that we might introduce someone into the kingdom, that someone might find the forgiveness that maybe we have found. I know, Father, as always, there are people who are here and they're even running in their minds, why did I even come? But help them to know that they're here today by divine appointment, that they're listening to this message under your sovereign providential hand. And so I ask you for your help that with Paul, I pray and ask that you might help me to make the gospel clear. That all who will hear this might find a relationship with the living God and those who've already done that, that they might grow further and deeper. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There is a, a, a bulletin that you received as you came in. If you'll pull it out, I think it will actually be helpful to you. Uh, member and visitor alike, pull it out. And even if you know how to answer these questions, I want you to write down the answers Sometimes you're taking a moment to literally, physically write an answer will encourage the person next to you. And these are some questions that I like to ask people. I often ask them when they come to the church. You know, we live in a day where I meet visitors most every week, some who've gone to church their entire lives, some sporadically, some who've read through the Bible a dozen times. Probably half of our visitors who come don't even own a Bible. And everything between those points and so people are at different places in their spiritual journey, and my call as a pastor is to try to encourage them. And that's really your call, too, if you know the Lord. And so there's a few questions that I think are helpful. We call them spiritual diagnostics. You know, if you go into a physician's office, he may ask you a series of questions to figure where you are physically. Well, you want to know where you are spiritually. And so the first question is this, if it's necessary to have the second birth, and Jesus said, you must. He said it three times. You must, you must, you must, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You want to make sure that you're born again. Born again is not just a description of a certain segment of Christianity. It's a segment of all Christians. Now, we tend to put that adjective, a born again Christian, but actually someone is not a Christian if they're not born again, according to Jesus. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so the first question is, if you have to have this second birth to go to heaven, on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I'm unsure, 100, I'm positive, how certain are you that if you were to die, you would go? Put down an answer. Just mark it out there in the bulletin. And if nothing else, write it out in the margin of your mind. And again, you're taking a moment to write it as helping some of the people around you. Take a moment, write that down. And why do I want you to write it down? Because Jesus said your mouth speaks what's in your heart. You could say your pen writes out what is in your heart. So I don't want you to forget your answer. 
because I want you to take your answer and put it into the mirror of the Bible. I would say on average that 30% of the people that I dialogue with as a pastor will say that they're 100%, but they answer the next two questions wrong, and very often they will discover they are 100% wrong. They have a false assurance of salvation. And so the second question is, very, very helpful to people. If you were to stand before God, and you won't in the sense that he's gonna ask you these questions, I hope you know that. One second after you die, you're either in the presence of the Lord in heaven or you are eternally banished. It is true that God will take all those who are in current day hell, it's called Hades, and at the end of time, bring them all before his great white throne. They'll all be speechless. They won't say anything, the scripture says because they know they are covered over in guilt and in just condemnation, and they will confess that Jesus is Lord. All men will confess that, some by an act of the free will because they've had the second birth, some because they will have to before they are forever damned in a place called the lake of fire. You say, do you believe these are real places? Absolutely. These are real places. Now listen, you can say they're not real, and you can say and believe anything you want. It doesn't make it true. I wrote a booklet for Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, a chapter in an apologetic series. I actually wrote several, but one in particular is how to prove the Bible is true. And when people come to meet the pastor, we give them that, and we go through five divine proofs for the authority of Scripture. God didn't write the Quran or the Upanishads or the Vedas or any other religious book. Only the Bible has his fingerprints all over it. And there are sure historical evidences that any thinking person can study and examine. And so if the Bible is God's word, you can now take any thought that you have, any belief that you have, put it into the mirror of the scripture and see if it matches. So if God said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What would be your answer? Write it down. If you're not writing it down, at least record it out there in the margin of your mind. Now, don't forget it. I want you to hold on to that answer. You say, I'm not sure what I would write, Pastor. Well, if you're not 100% sure, what do you think you'd have to do to be 100%? What would you say? Now, this morning, we're going to go through a little booklet, and if you know Christ in a life-changing way, this will be something that you can use to share Christ. And I would just say to you, out of a burden that I have as a pastor, because I realize the reason America is sinking fast is because the average born-again Christian no longer shares his faith. And when the light is basically smothered, darkness overruns a nation. And so not only is it an obedience issue to share the gospel, if you know Jesus, he hasn't commissioned just preachers. In fact, one of my jobs as a preacher is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. But he has called everyone to share the gospel. He's called you to be obedient to that message. And if you haven't won someone to Jesus in the last two years, where you've seen them become a baptized member of a New Testament church, maybe what you're doing isn't working. Now, I go to meetings sometimes, and you see hundreds of people respond, and when the dust is all settled, where are they? You can't find them. True conversion results in New Testament baptized members of a New Testament church. Now, when I went into the ministry in 1978, we used to do what we called an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. There was an assumption 
that people had a certain basis of knowledge. And so when Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost stands up, he's interacting with the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because he's preaching to Jewish people who had had an exposure to those scriptures their entire life. And it used to be safe in the 60s and 70s to assume that people had heard verses like John 3:16 before, and they knew some basic, at least rudimentary truths of the gospel. No longer. I meet people who come to this church, and sometimes they've only been to church a few times in their life. The younger they are, the less likely their track record is. I met a Marine not long ago. He told me this was the very first time in his entire life he'd ever been to church. And so most people are kind of a blank slate when it comes to basic biblical knowledge, and they need what we call an Acts 17. That's what Dr. Bright used to call it, an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel, where you give a full-blown presentation, assuming nothing, starting in Genesis. And that's what this booklet does. Now, this booklet is not only a collection of verses, but there's some commentary in it. Why? For the simple reason that most people are like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The eunuch has in his hands the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He happens to be in the providence of God in that very section of the scroll that preaches the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah. And he's reading it when God retains Philip to go and meet this man. In fact, the timing is so close he has to jog to catch up to the chariot. He says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he hears what he's reading. He's reading it out loud. How can I unless someone explains it to me? Most people do not pick up a Gideon's Bible in a hotel room and get saved. Now, God can do that if he chooses. But typically, God brings alongside a human agent who explains the gospel to them. And so really, if you sat down with a person and just read it because the commentary, the explanation for the context of these verses are given, you might see someone come to Christ. And there's a QR code on the back of each one where you can just say, hey, would you even listen to this and tell me what you think? You know, when you ask people for their opinion, hey, Bob, uh, this is a little booklet that explains what it means to be a Christian. I was wondering if you'd listen to it and give me your opinion. I'd love to get back with you. Anytime you want five of these, you can walk up to the front desk. They'll give them to you, courtesy of Search the Scriptures. They'll give them to you. They're now in 12 languages. Now, we're not going to give you 100 or 200 because we don't want them to sit on your car seat and then go to waste because they cost money to print. But if you will reach out to people, the best thing is to walk them through it. And again, if you haven't won someone to Jesus where you've seen them become a member of a New Testament church, then I want you to pay close attention. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that God can use you. God can equip you to share the gospel with people. And so ask those diagnostic questions. They're very, very helpful to people because it helps them to do some self-analysis to see if indeed their spiritual answer to those diagnostics match what's found in Scripture. So we're going to go through this booklet this morning. And again, copies are available for those who would like them. You've already gone through these first few questions. So we're going to start on the first of five points. It simply says that God created man to have a friendship with himself. The Bible opens with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And God takes two chapters to carefully delineate that creation. In the first chapter, he gives an overview. In the second chapter, he gets into the specifics. So contrary to Tim Keller, who said that the first two chapters are filled with error unless they're poetry, they're history. Those two chapters represent biblical history. The first chapter, how God created the world in six days. The second chapter, how he focuses on the creation of man, which is the height of his creation. And so we're told in uh, the book of Genesis, the second chapter, Moses will write, then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, a nephesh. We're not some highly evolved animal that walks on two legs. That's what the devil would have you to believe. Theistic evolution, where Christians have acquiesced to the doctrine, the false doctrine, the false teaching of evolution, to say that, well, God created, he just used evolution to do it. That's Satan's way of putting a huge distance between the creation of the world and our accountability to God. If this thing has been going on for millions of years, then some sort of accountability just seems very, very distant. But if God created the world with the appearance of evil, and some of these men from MIT will be here in April, just some very brilliant men who are involved in the space project and other things, and they'll be doing a creation weekend. You don't want to miss that. It will be live streamed for those who are in other states and can't attend. But the scripture affirms that this creation that we live in is less than 10,000 years old that God created Adam as a full-grown adult. There there were fruit-bearing trees in the garden. And that, yes, indeed, there's coming a day of accountability and a day of judgment. So God created man as a living soul, as a nephesh. Solomon can say that God wrote eternity into your hearts. You know, I meet people sometimes, and they say, well, I don't believe there's a heaven or a hell. But sure enough, I'll see that person at a funeral, and they'll say, well, Grandma's in a better place. You know, all of a sudden, everything changes. No, man knows there's a God. God's divine attributes, his eternal power are clearly seen, the Bible says, by the things he has made. And men know there's a heaven or a hell. They know that there's life beyond the grave because God made that as part of their spiritual DNA. And so we are unlike the animals. Dogs and cats don't seek the Lord. They don't pray. Only people have that capacity. It's part of being made in the image of God. Moses will record God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. So at the start, there was no suffering, no sickness, nor death. There was no death. You see, in theistic evolution, you have death before the creation of the man. The Bible teaches there was no death anywhere in the universe until sin entered into the world. God created man. There was no death in all the universe, but sin brought with it death. And part of being made in the image of God is you're a free moral agent. You have the capacity to make choices. And so God gave man a choice. We read in Genesis 2, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. It's underscored in Hebrew. It's emphatic. It's like saying, pounding your fists in the pulpit, in the very day that you eat from it, you will die. And man died that day just as God had prophesied. He died on the inside spiritually. 
And so Paul can describe some women who are alive physically, but dead on the inside. He describes us all that way in Ephesians chapter 2 as living dead people, physically alive, spiritually dead. And so Adam and Eve felt shame and guilt, and they ran away from God. They began to die that day physically. And so God put man on notice. We're born aging. We're headed towards the grave. And if the problem's not fixed before you leave this life, you'll die eternally. It's what the Bible calls eternal death. It's also called in the Bible the second death. And so man is created with a free will. We also learn that God, therefore, as an act of grace, removed man from the garden. Listen to these words from Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's like God stops right in the middle of a sentence. Had man eaten from the tree of life before he sinned, then he would be forever sealed in a right relationship. We'll see this morning, the Bible affirms the solidarity of the human race. You won't get to heaven and say, well, thanks, Adam, man, you're a louse. I was born with this sin nature. No, the scripture teaches that we were all in Adam, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so everyone downstream of Adam is a sinner. By nature, we are sinners. And had Adam eaten from the tree of life in a fallen state, he would be forever unredeemable like the angels. So what did God do? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And so sin, suffering, war, poverty, greed, sickness, it's all come down into the universe because of sin. By nature, King David will write, we are sinners. He'll say, in sin did my mother conceive me. The scripture teaches by nature, by bent, by birth, we're fallen people. Jesus will say, for out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and fornications and adulteries. It's not just acts of sin, it's attitudes of sins. He speaks of thefts that come out of man's heart, a desire to take something that's not yours, a desire to have someone that is someone else's wife, a desire to hate someone in your heart, which is equal to being a murderer. And so we are sinners by nature, and it's obvious in even little children You have to train them how to share, not to be selfish. You have to train them how to tell the truth, not how to lie, because we are all fallen. And so the scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In both Hebrew and Greek, the word that is used here is a word that is an archery term in the first century. There are actually 11 words in the New Testament that speak of sin. This particular word, like the Hebrew word, was used of an archer aiming at a target who missed the bullseye. And someone called out, you sinned. You missed the mark. And God uses that picturesque Greek word here Hamatano to say that we've missed the mark of his righteousness. If the bullseye is his righteousness, which is what you need to have a relationship with God, it's what you need to go to heaven. You have to be as righteous as God to go to heaven. We've missed that mark. And so Paul will write in the sixth chapter, for the wages of sin is death. The word wage is actually a word in the New Testament era that was used to describe a soldier's pay. And so he's basically saying, your paycheck for being a sinner is death. And if by death all he meant was you get dropped in the ground, 
I suppose it wouldn't be that bad. And some people suppressing what they know to be true in their spiritual hearts, that God set eternity in their hearts, will deny that there's life beyond the grave. But most people don't. They attend a funeral and they hope their loved one will be seen again. They hope that loved one is in a better place. Well, you can't do anything for your loved one once they've left this world, but you can do something for yourself and you ought to. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, physical death, ultimately eternal death. And so Paul speaks to those who will meet God. A day will come when Jesus returns and he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. In what sense do they not know God? They don't know him personally. Now, all men know that God exists. Romans 1, 18 through 20. There's no such thing as an atheist, according to the Bible. That's why you never find the apostles defending atheism. And we spend too much time in our seminaries training men to defend the existence of God when we should be training them how to share the gospel. Because nine out of 10 people aren't atheists anyway, and you should go towards those who aren't suppressing the truth and start there because there's so many unevangelized people. But all men know of God's existence. And that's why, again, there's only one half of one verse spoken to atheism. It's actually repeated twice, Psalm 14, Psalm 50, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And so it's not speaking to the fact that there is a God. It's not speaking to the fact that you might say Jesus is God the Son, was dead, buried, and raised from the dead. The devil knows those facts as well. When the scripture speaks of knowing God, it's speaking of a second birth kind of individual. Someone who's entered into a personal relationship with the living God, where they know God personally. Do you know him personally? You know, we sang a song this morning about broken and then healed and empty lives being filled. That's what the gospel does. And some of us, we're we're looking for meaning in life. We think if I get a better job or a bigger house or a higher paycheck, that that void will be filled, but it never can be. Pascal, the famous French philosopher and mathematician, said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that can't be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known in Jesus Christ. And so a day will come when God will deal out retribution to those who don't know the Lord, to those who don't obey the gospel. This word obey is challenging to translate. It's the word to hear, to hear under. In other words, you listen under the truth of the gospel. You submit to the truth of the gospel. That's what he means by obeying the gospel. You hear the message and you obediently submit to its message, to its truth. And what will happen to these people? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. How long is hell? Forever. How long is heaven? Forever. It's eternal. The same word that's used to describe the eternal God is used to describe eternal life and eternal death. Hell is timeless, dateless, measureless. When a person has perished in the place that God calls a place of eternal retribution. And he's been there a hundred billion years. He won't have one last second to get out of there. So you don't want to be wrong on this. This is like the most critical issue of life. 
If what we're saying is true, if the Bible is God's authoritative word, the most important decision in our human history is what we do with Christ. Because what we do with Jesus Christ determines what God does in the end with us. And so here's the problem illustrated. We have God who's holy and man who's a sinner. And most people have felt that estrangement and they assume if somehow I can maybe live better, try harder, follow a particular philosophy of life, a moral code, I can reach God. But God says in his word, he can't allow anything into his heaven that will defile it. You say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've obeyed most of the commandments. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is guilty of all. That's how absolutely holy God is. And so therein lies the dilemma. And most people, again, think that they can fix it on their own. Sometimes I'll ask a person, well, why is it that good deeds will not secure heaven for you? Which is what the next page basically covers. There are two reasons. Now, some people say, well, because you have to believe in Jesus. No, that's the solution. That's not the reason. And as you share the gospel, again, if you haven't won someone to Christ, think this through. You say, can God use me to win someone to Jesus? Yes, he can. God can use you, and he wants to use you. But it takes one Christian sharing the plan of salvation with a lost person for that to happen. They don't become a Christian by looking at your life. They have to hear the message of truth. The gospel is the power of God to save people. And so there are two reasons why being good can't secure heaven. If they can't answer this, they're not ready to become a Christian. They have to know that their sin separates them from God. We could say it stains the soul because everything that God has ever thought, said, and did is holy. And we're the opposite of that. And so our iniquity has made a separation between us and our God. And the second reason is because good deeds can't satisfy the penalty of sin. Sometimes I'll ask the question to see if someone's getting the gospel, because I don't want them to quote unquote prayer prayer of something they don't understand. Why? Because it's a false conversion. And sometimes I'll ask them, well, why does salvation have to be a free gift? Why is it it is not something you can earn? And again, if they can't answer that, they don't understand what it is God's asking them to believe. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must die, the prophet Ezekiel said. If you commit a heinous crime and the judge says it's worthy of death, you can't do community service to satisfy him. No, the penalty is death, and only death will satisfy the living God. That brings us to the third point. It was God to the rescue. God's love moved him to rescue us from our sin. John will write, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And so God comes after Adam. Adam didn't come back to God. Oh, God, we failed you. We're so sorry. Please help us. No, he ran from God. There's none who seeks God by nature. Where are you, Adam? That's God seeking man. And the greatest expression of that is, I suppose, John 3.16, the most quoted verse, the most preached verse still in all the Bible. It used to be most Americans at least had a familiarity with this verse. Then when they saw John 3.16, they knew that was from the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world contextually obviously is not the planets and the stars and the oceans. You can put your own name in there. Put your name in there. For God so loved 
that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever, you, me, anybody, whoever believes in him and God's only begotten son, you can't get to the father but through the son. The him is in God's only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have, not will have. It's a present tense. Have this moment eternal life. Jesus said it this way in John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes has right now, this moment, eternal life. See, most people think of eternal life as something way out there. That when you die, hopefully you'll get eternal life. But Jesus spoke of it as something you can have today. Over 100 times in the New Testament, it's described as something you can have right now. Now, sometimes it's spoken of in terms of future benefits that come with the package, like heaven. But eternal life is not a place. It's a relationship with God. Notice how Jesus defined it. Now, this is eternal life, that they might know you. There's the word know again. That they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I thought Paul said everyone knows God. They do in a creative sense. They do in terms of their conscience. They know they're either pleasing or displeasing when their conscience either defends or accuses them, the God who made them. That's why there's no such thing as an atheist. But here, no is no personally. Know the Lord in a personal, life-changing way. Do you know God in that way? Well, people say, well, I have this relationship with the Lord, and He understands me, and I understand Him. What's important is that you're responding to what He says and not what you think. Again, everything you believe is based on something. And if it's not consistent with what God has revealed in Scripture, kick it out throw it away. But here's the point. If eternal life is something you can have this moment, it's got to be more than heaven because obviously we're not in heaven. And if I have it and it is eternal, then I can be 100% sure that if my little ticker stops, the only thing that changes is to be absent from the body and it's to be present with the Lord. I move from earth into heaven. You say, well, how do I know? How do I get it? You have to believe in Jesus. Now, it doesn't say whoever believes about Jesus. Now, the last extensive survey that I'm aware of was in 2019 done by the Pew Research on Religion. And at that point, it was down over 20 points from the 1970s. 72% of Americans say they're Christian. I could be wrong, but I doubt that if Jesus comes back today that 72% of America is going to heaven. It's light of especially what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small. And the way, the hadas, the road is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Jesus said in reality, remember, he's not talking about all the isms of the world. The word Christian wasn't even invented until several years into the life of the church in a place called Antioch, and Gentiles gave us the term. They were just called followers of the way initially. But Jesus said of those who identify with him, most are actually on the wide road. And he goes on to illustrate, not with some ho-hum illustration, but with the most dramatic illustration you could think of. People who preached in his name, people who cast out demons in his name, people who did miracles in his name. And he said, I'll say to them, I never knew you. Not I once knew you. It's not like you were once saved and then you lost it. You can't lose something that's eternal. That's an oxymoron. 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. You say, can an unbeliever do those three things? There's examples of all three in the Bible. And Jesus wants to underscore the truth. We'd say today, if someone did a miracle or cast out a demon or preached with power in his name, oh, he's a spirit-filled believer. Don't be fooled, Jesus is saying. The litmus test is, has your life been changed from the inside out so that you don't practice lawlessness? You practice the things of God because you've been born from above, which is a byproduct of conversion. So it says here, millions and millions of people acknowledge certain facts about Jesus Christ, so they think, well, that makes me a Christian. But again, the scripture is clear. It's not enough to believe about Christ. James 2 says the demons believe. In Luke 8, it speaks of those who believe, but not in, believe intellectually. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness, Paul will say. You can believe in the mind and not with the heart. You can miss salvation by eight inches. They even get excited, emotional. But because it's not real conversion, they end up departing. It's intellectual only. There's going to be a vast shock on the day of judgment of all these people who have a false assurance. You can be assured. God wants you to be assured. But you want to make sure that your assurance is built on what the Scripture reveals, not what you think or even what some preacher says, but what does the Bible say? And so that brings us to the fourth point. Jesus is the only solution to this broken relationship. The first paragraph basically says the whole Bible is about Jesus. Starting in the Proto-Evangelium, as it's been called for centuries from the Latin Bible, the first gospel, Genesis 3, where God makes a promise of a savior right after man dies, and he begins to unfold by prophecy and type and illustration all the way through Malachi that the savior of the world is going to come. And so he speaks of this coming savior. That's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, but you're missing the point. The scriptures speak about me. He said, Moses wrote about me. He said, Abraham saw my day and he believed. And so, for instance, here's a prophet who lived 700 years before Christ. His name is Isaiah. And Isaiah writes, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. El is one of the names for God, El or Elohim or El Shaddai. And here it comes at the end of a word in Hebrew, and it means literally God with us. God is going to be with us. Two chapters later, he'll write, a baby will be born and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. The Messiah is not going to be simply a man. God is going to be among us. God is literally, physically going to walk in our presence. Well, how will God become a man? Centuries later, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Nazareth. And she's not 12 or 14. That's just foolishness. And that became a popular thing to say in the 70s, and many preachers say that. They are dead wrong. Now, that's another sermon, all right? But uh, I guarantee she was probably 17, 18, maybe even 20 years of age. Lay that aside. This angel comes to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. 
The scripture affirms that the sin nature is passed on through the father. You know, in paternity suits years ago, they would do blood tests with the father. Why? Because the father determined whether or not it was his baby by the blood tie. And so without human man's blood, without a human father, God becomes a man. God the Spirit overshadows Mary's womb, and he takes the one who is eternal. We had some Jehovah's Witness on our campus last night for, for our harvest festival, going around trying to witness to people, and thank God our security guys had enough iron to say, look, you're welcome here, but this is private property, and you're not going to preach that message on this campus. And that was the end of that, thank God. But listen, they deny that Jesus is Lord. They say he's created, as does every cult. They say, well, Jesus is a created person. That's not the picture Scripture gives. It says Messiah's comings will be from eternity past. God will become a man. A baby will be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. And so the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb and took his eternal deity and brought together sinless humanity into one person. He wasn't all God and no man. He wasn't all man and no God. He wasn't half God and half man. He was the God man, fully God, fully man. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the scripture affirms that God would become a man. And as you would expect, he would become a sinless man. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So God takes on humanity, and as you would expect, he's a sinless person. He was tempted in every way. He knew no sin. In him was no sin, the scripture says. So if 1 Peter 3 says Christ died for sin and he had zero sin, it can only mean that his death is substitutionary in nature. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't because of some angry mob. As Peter will stand up and say, he died according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Paul will write, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, sinners worthy of death, Christ dies instead of us. He dies in our place. Now, if I lived back in Bible days and I wanted to die for you, I wouldn't be able to because I'm a sinner. I already deserve, I already merit death. I inherited the problem from Richard John Brogy. He got it from his dad. He got it from his dad. He got it from his dad. And while we look different, we're all relatives. We all go back to Adam. You say, where did the races come? The only explanation for the races is found in Scripture. Not some abnormality. Hitler said that black and Jewish people were inferior in their evolutionary process. The Scripture affirms that we are from one blood. The Scripture affirms because of man's act of defiance at the Tower of Babel, God brought Babel confusion. It forced people to marry within groups of folks they could understand. And given enough time, you have all the various nationalities. One race, a multiplicity of nationalities across the planet. But the ground is level at the cross because we all fall short of the glory of God. And so God demonstrates his love and that this one, the Lord Jesus, who is sinless, dies as a substitute in our place. How do we know he was sinless? The resurrection. 
And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the scriptures. His death was according to scripture. In Nazareth, they wanted to throw him over a cliff. But power emanates from him, and he walks right through that mob. Why? Because God's plan was not for him to get thrown over a cliff. They would often execute someone guilty of blasphemy. How? By stoning him. But of course, they lost their authority to stone blasphemers, though they exercised it sometimes illegitimately, like someone with Stephen. They stoned him to death. No, the scripture prophesied a thousand years before in Psalm 16 that he would be crucified. Isaiah does the same thing that he'll be pierced through for our iniquities. Zechariah says, they'll look on him whom they have pierced. God is going to have nails driven through his hands and his feet. God specifically foretold how the Messiah would die. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. And so the resurrection is really the central point of preaching, not simply the crucifixion. If he didn't die, you couldn't have a resurrection. But if he died on a cross and he wasn't raised, it was meaningless. Thousands of people died under Roman and Persian authority by crucifixion. I suppose the height of it, they say, was in 70 AD when, as Jesus predicted, Titus Vespucian came down and over 100,000 people were crucified. But Jesus' crucifixion was different. He was buried according to Scripture. He wasn't thrown in some common grave like most dead crucified people. He was buried, and then on the third day, he was raised, just as the Old Testament types in specific prophecies spoke of. Why is it important? Because as Paul says in Romans 1.4, he was declared. It's a Greek word. It means he was announced. He was announced to be God the Son. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Now, sometimes children will come in and they'll say, well, Pastor Carl, when a child asks it, it's very perceptive. I usually ask them. Every once in a while, a child will bring it up to me. I'll say, this child is being prayed for. Pastor Carl, I don't understand why the resurrection said that Jesus is God. What about Lazarus? Well, there's actually eight people who are raised to life, all to die again. Most famously, I suppose, Lazarus. But Jesus was the first one ever to be resurrected. He's a picture of the Feast of First Fruits. He comes out of the grave for the first time in a glorified body, never to die again. And he was declared to be Lord. And so now the calendars of the world are B.C., A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Some want to get away from that Christian designation. They say B.C.E., A.C.E., before the common era, after. It's the same problem. (laughs) He split time down the middle by his resurrection. And so in light of that, he makes this claim, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, you notice it's articular, and the article is very important in Greek. Some languages, like the Slavic languages, don't have the article. And when I go to places like Ukraine and you try to explain the article, it's a new concept to a lot of them. The article is what we called in uh, third grade English the pointing word. It points to something. If I said, would you give me a pen, you could find any pen you could come up with. 
But if I say, give me the pen, you know I have a specific pen in mind. He is the life. He is the truth. He is the way. No one can come to the Father but by him. And if he's not the only way to God, he is no way. He's not even saying I'm the best way. He's not even saying I'm the go- a good way. He's saying I'm the only way. And if he's not the only way, he's no way because he's a deceiver or he's deceived. That would make him a sinner and he could save absolutely no one. So with great authority, Peter stands up and he preaches on a second sermon and there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so because these things are true, God built a bridge between us and sinful man. On the cross, we sang it this morning in one of the hymns Matt gave us. It's finished. It's one word, to tell us thy. There's a museum in Jerusalem. I've only taken a group there once about 20 years ago. Actually, it was longer than that. It was 1989. And on it was this ancient piece of parchment in that museum. At the time, it was housed in the Rockefeller Museum. And on it were lists of names. And they found this piece of parchment in a first century tax collector's office there in the city of Jerusalem. It had been protected underground in a vase. And next to every name when you paid your tax, they wrote the Greek word tetelestai. It meant paid in full. Jesus shouts tetelestai. It's finished. It's paid in full, which is why the Bible says here in Galatians chapter 2, for if we could be saved by keeping the law, then there was no need for Christ to die. Now, that's a paraphrase. That's the living Bible, but it captures the meaning. More literally, it says, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died for no reason. If you could hit the bullseye back to our archery illustration, if you could achieve the righteousness you need to go to heaven, the righteousness of God, if you could do it on your own, Jesus never would have had to have died. He might have come simply to have taught us to live better or differently, but he came to die. He said, no one will take my life away from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up. Mark says a multitude of people in oikos came to arrest him. The new translations say a crowd, but it misses the nuance of the Greek. A multitude came to arrest him. Matthew said a great multitude. John uses the word to describe this vast multitude of people who are saved in the revelation from every tribe and tongue. It's used to describe a huge group of people. How huge was this group? John says a Roman battalion. A battalion could be 600 or 1,000. He specifies a Roman battalion led by a Chiliarchus. We get our English word Chiliism from it. Now, often to use the word Chiliism, probably not that much, but it means 1,000. And so when you're reading theology on the return of Christ, you'll read of the Chiliistic reign of the Messiah. That is, Messiah is going to reign for 1,000 years upon the earth. The fact that he'll reign on the earth, literally, is an Old Testament doctrine. The length of it being a thousand years is revealed in the New Testament. And so a leader of a thousand men, excluding the temple police and all the religious hoi polloi that came that day. Jesus said, whom are you seeking? Jesus the Nazarene. And he took to his name the divine name, to his lips, the divine name by which God identified himself to Moses. 
He said Yahweh, and when he said it, the Bible says they all fell backwards. There's only one other place in the New Testament where someone falling back is used. It describes an outside source, actually two places, an outside source where someone is pushed down. It's used of the walls of Jericho, repeated twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in Hebrews 11, but it's also used when God pushes the stars from heaven out of the heavens above. The Lord Jesus, by his word, pushes a thousand plus people on their backs. And he doesn't walk away to a safe place. He then allows them, after he established the truth, that no one will take his life. He is in authority. He is in charge. And he allows them to get back on their feet. He says, tell me who you came for. Well, you. You can have me. They didn't go after the other men. They could have. They could have arrested the whole crow. They only took Jesus. And they knew that he was in control. Peter knew it too. Remember that night? They all boasted under Peter's leadership, but they all chided in, we'll go to jail for you. We'll die for you. And Peter took out his sword and went after Malchus, cut off his ear. And Jesus instantly healed it as only Luke, as a physician, as you might expect, records. Put away the sword, Peter. I don't need any help. He allowed those men to arrest him. He allowed those men to drive those spikes through his hands and his feet because, A, he had to die physically. His lifeblood had to expire him for the life is in the blood, and so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And he dies spiritually. He shouts, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this one who knew a perfect, unbroken, eternal love relationship for the first time in time and space had been separated in a moment's time there on Golgotha, As an infinite person, he can accomplish what you and I as finite people will take all of eternity to do in hell if we don't receive God's substitute. And so because he did what he did, God can make this great promise. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember, you need the righteousness of God to go to heaven. So what did God do? He, the Father, in the context, made him the Son who had never, ever, ever sinned, who knew no sin. He became sin. How did people in the Old Testament go to heaven? Through Messiah. They were just looking forward to the promise God made. We're on the other side of the cross. We look back. God, the Scripture says in Hebrews 10, took the sin of all time and laid it on Christ. It says he bore our sin in his own body on the cross. People come into a pastor's office and you say, well, they only confess to Roman Catholic priests. No, they confess to evangelical preachers too. I can't think right now, and there's some heinous things in the Bible. I can't think of anything that someone hasn't told me they've done in the 45 years I've been in the ministry. And sometimes you want to fall out of your seat as a young pastor But the longer you live, you realize what man's capacity is. And Jesus shed his blood and paid a complete and full payment to tell us die. It's finished. 
And so you are either in your righteousness, which falls short of the glory of God, and if you die today or Christ returns and you're in your human merit kind of earned righteousness, you'll spend an eternity away from the Lord. The only exception to that in Scripture are little babies, little children who die. They go into the presence of the Lord. The scripture, understand, does not speak of an age of accountability. It speaks better, I suppose, if you were to summarize what's revealed, a point of accountability. There is no particular age. It might be eight-year-old for eight years old for some child. It might be eleven for another. Only God knows what a person's mental capacity is, and we develop differently. But listen, if you've past that point where you're able mentally, even if you've never heard it, but you're able mentally to understand the gospel and you don't respond, and you die in your righteousness, you die as eternally unrighteous. But if, again, the Bible is Christ, and this little piece of paper here is me, if I'm in Christ, then I have the righteousness of God in Christ. We sang this morning that we're saints. Did you pick that up? We're saints. He's not speaking of some elite class of people that some church deemed to be saints. In the New Testament, it's used of every single born-again believer. Why? Because you've been given a righteousness that was gifted to you by the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you want to be certain that you're in Christ. You say, well, how could anyone be certain? This is why I ask people, sometimes verbally, because I want to understand, am I speaking to a believer or an unbeliever? Is this person lost or are they saved? I'm not their judge, but I can only go by what God said. Look, if a Jehovah's Witness like the two we had on the campus last night deny that Jesus is God, can I say they're lost? Of course I can. Why? Because the Bible says they're lost. Unless you believe that I am he, God in human flesh, you'll die in your sin. That's not a judgment I'm making. That's a judgment scripture has unfolded. And so if a person says, why should God let you know? I don't know what I'd say. Are they saved or lost? Lost according to the Bible. They're lost. Do I blame them for not knowing? Of course not. We're all born in ignorance. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, contextually will be saved. But how can you call upon him and whom you've never heard about? Not will you ever hear about him unless someone goes and tells you. That's our job. Have you told anyone lately? God wants to use you. Pray what Paul prayed or ask for prayer for in Colossians 4. God, give me an open door. And help me to make it clear when the door opens. God will use you, I promise. The problem is, is that most Christians today don't want to do what God's commanded them to do. Now, I'll win people to Jesus if God gives me the opportunity, but I can't win people for Jesus that God wants you to win to Jesus. I'll work with you, and if we can be a team, praise the Lord. And I'm grateful for the people who are inviting their lost friends to church and some who even physically come to meet the pastor. That just... Makes my heart sail. But out there in the day-to-day events of life, God wants to use us to bring people into the kingdom. Some people, why should God let you in heaven? Good works. Are they saved or lost? Lost according to the Bible. Jesus to some highly religious men who went to the temple three different times a day and each time according to the mission they prayed for an hour. They fasted one day in seven. They gave a tenth of all they had. And in Matthew 21, to paraphrase it, Jesus said, the prostitutes and the tax collectors will get in before you do. 
What? It's true. Why? Because you didn't have to convince those people that they were morally bankrupt. They had so messed up and sold their life, they didn't stand a chance of getting into heaven in their way of thinking. Were that highly religious man next to her, next to him, oh, God will let me in. Look, we're placed next to Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and that makes the ground level. On another occasion, to a highly religious man, he said, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous, in air quotes, I came to call sinners to repentance. You have to change your mind about what God says about your sin. So many people rationalize their sin. They say, God understands. He knows I love this woman. I'm not married to her, but he knows I love her. He understands. No, he doesn't understand. Or the self-righteous guy. He knows I'm a good person. Yeah, he knows that your heart is desperately wicked like mine. We need a savior. Some people will bring God into the equation, the third one here on page 22. Some people, why should God let you in heaven? Well, I believe in God. Sometimes they'll even say, I believe in Jesus. Sometimes they'll even say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I do so-and-so, and I try not to do such-and-such. It's what we call the Jesus Plus program. This is the third equation is Roman Catholicism. That's their belief. The Council of Trent reaffirmed Vatican I, Vatican II, Cardinal of Colleges, 2010. They haven't changed it in centuries. They don't deny that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. They just say it's not enough. It's Jesus plus you. That's why no one in Catholicism can have assurance of salvation unless the church, after you died, deemed you to be a saint. But I'm not just ragging on Catholics. That's the average Protestant today. The Jesus Plus program. That's the program I was raised on. And I was 18 years old when I heard for the first time I couldn't save myself. I gave my life to the Lord Jesus, trusted in his death and resurrection to save me, to forgive me, to change me. You know, one of the first persons I wanted to go speak to was my grandfather. I'd really gotten to know him in the year prior to that. I'd painted his house and drove from Worcester to Boston, Worcester to Boston so many times. Patrick Sweeney was 86 years old, had gone to mass every week of his life, never once heard the plan of salvation. I walked him through it. He bowed his head. He asked Christ to be his savior. He told his two twin daughters, my mother and my aunt, For the first time, I have peace in my life. And five days after he bowed his head and received Christ, he died. I almost think God preserved him until I could become a Christian so he could hear. You know, there are people God is preserving in your realm that are unique to your sphere of influence that I will never rub shoulders with. Don't go to heaven empty-handed. If you haven't led someone to Christ in a long time, get on your knees before the end of the day and say, God, I want this to change. You just watch what God will do. No, the scripture would say, faith in Christ alone gives salvation and good works follow. First John says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Now, a person asked me a question, oh, it's been 20 years. He said, well, pastor, does that mean that a person could lack assurance of salvation? You know, he's 50%, and John is trying to sure up their assurance. No, that's not what he's saying. Read the whole epistle. The epistle that he is writing are to folks who have a false assurance because all these false teachers came into the church, polluting the church with false doctrine, making people think they were saved when in reality they were not. And so he goes through all these evidences. By this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He'll say, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God changed life. He'll live forever. Um, The person who's born again... He'll persevere. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had remained with us, they would not have went out from us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. People say, well, thank God my son at 16 became a believer. Now, I know he's wayward. He's living with a woman. He's a confessing homosexual. He's this, he's that. He wants nothing to do with God or the Bible. No, the scripture says he was never saved. And you're doing him a disservice to help him to think, well, you're saved. You're just not a good Christian. Listen, when you're born again, you don't renounce the faith. That's the mark of an unbeliever. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. Then he goes on to say, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared for this purpose, to take away sins. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. He doesn't say the one who practices perfection. He's already said in the first chapter, the person who says he never sins, he's a liar. He's making God out to be a liar. But he's speaking of a new direction in life. He said the Son of Man came into the world for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. We know we've passed out of life into death that we've been born again. Huh? We love the brethren. Oh, really? You love the people of God? Yes. Why? Why do you love your family? Well, if it's a healthy family, because you're kin. You may put up with a lot of guff, right? But you love them. You're flesh and blood. When you're born again, you're brought into a family. And if you love the Lord, it's one of the marks. He'll go on to say, he says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that what? We've become a child of God. And for this reason, he says his commandments are not a burden. Why? Because you want to obey this one who loves you unconditionally. So notice, good works come on the right side. Look, the slipperiest person to deal with is the person who knows the gospel. It's by grace through faith, not of works. They give all the right words. It's through the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, the power of God unto salvation. But their life has never changed. 
Those are self-deceived people. And that's what John is dealing with at the end. These things, what things? All these marks that your life is so different. These are the evidences that you can know that you have the real thing, that you're truly converted. And so we note here, good works do not save or even help save. They're just the evidence or fruit of true conversion. And so he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And uh, so why? We could have his righteousness, then we have the spirit within us, and he changes us. How do we make this real? Let me bring this in for a landing. You have to personally receive Christ. As many as received him, talking about Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even, or that is, or in other words, you could render it to those who believe in his name. The name of the Lord, we studied it last week from, or two weeks ago from Malachi. It represents all that God is. Jesus' name represents that he is Lord and Savior. And when you receive him or believe in his name, you become what you weren't before, born again, a child of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift not of works, lest anyone boast. It's a gift. You don't earn gifts. You humbly receive gifts. Now, in some languages of the world, the word faith and the word belief, well, they only have one word. In Greek, there's two. But in some languages, in some countries you go to, they just have one word. But that's okay. Why? Because they mean the same thing. So sometimes you'll read in the Bible, you're saved by your faith in Jesus or you're saved by believing in Jesus. It means the same thing. What's involved? Well, this next page, if you were walking someone through it, basically says there's an intellectual, there's an emotional, and a volitional aspect. Intellectually, there's certain things you have to know. So sometimes people come to the church and they'll say, well, I was saved when I was 11, but I came here and understood for the first time that you can't earn your way to heaven, that it's by what Jesus did alone. I'll say, well, you should be baptized again. Well, no, I got saved when I was 11. And by saved, they mean they walked the aisle, they maybe shook a preacher's hand, maybe he dunked them under. That's not salvation. Look, you only get saved once. Again, just as there's only one physical birth, there's only one spiritual birth. And if you were saved way back yonder, you would have said 100%, and you would have said, nothing I've done, only because of the death, burial, and the resurrection, period. And so there's an intellectual component, and that's why before you ask a person to decide for Christ, and you should ask people as if God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. When I preach, I preach for decisions. Why? Because I want people to respond to the truth. I'm not saying, well, this is good information. Go home and think about it. No, you ask people to respond. Would you like to receive Christ? Ask them. And sometimes ever before you even ask them, they've already responded. You don't technically have to pray a prayer. The Ethiopian eunuch never technically prayed a prayer. He was just listening to Philip's explanation of Isaiah 53. He didn't know he had made a decision with his heart. With the heart man believes, look, water, why can't I be baptized? You got to believe for I've made the decision. Oh, you have? Fantastic. Stop the chariot. Let's baptize this dude. And they did. But you invite people to make a decision for the Lord Jesus. But there is an intellectual component. And if they don't understand grace alone through faith alone, they don't know what it is they're being asked to believe yet. It's not enough to get emotional. Herod got emotional over John's preaching. Kept calling him back. The scripture says it's a verb. He joyed listening to Herod. 
cut his head off, but he enjoyed it. Not enough to get emotional. Some believe intellectually. They receive with joy. But they miss salvation again by eight inches. It's here, but it's not here. No, there's a volitional component. Just like you may be in love with someone intellectually, you want to marry them, you're in love with them emotionally, there's a day when you were married and a day when you weren't. There's a line that you cross. Not everybody can remember the line when they cross, but you cross at a point. The New Testament doesn't give assurance on your ability to remember the day, the hour, the moment, though most people know that. But it doesn't give you assurance on that level. It gives you assurance in the finished work of Christ, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who bears witness with you that you've been born again in a changed life. And so ask yourself today, where am I, on the left or the right? If you gave an answer, I don't know why God should let me into heaven, you may be in Graniteville, you may be in Grace, you may be live streaming. We had 25 states in the last service, at least on our website. We don't know how many we had on Facebook in four foreign countries some, some weeks we have 40 states that are live streaming. You may be somewhere in the world today and you're listening to this and you said, I don't know. You're on the left. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Search the scriptures yourself. Be like the Bereans. See if this is true. You gave an answer of good works. You're on the left. You gave the Jesus Plus program. You're on the left. You gave less than 100. You're on the left. You gave 100 but the wrong answer. You're on the left. How do you move to the right? By believing, by faith. Faith is taking God at his word. It's believing what he promised. Sometimes I'll take a person through this sinner's prayer. I'll ask them, hey, did you mean what you just prayed? Oh, I meant it. Are you saved? I don't know. I told you I was 50%. Maybe now I'm 90. Are they saved? No, they're not. Why? Because they didn't believe what God promised. God said, you call on my son and I'll instantly save you. And once you understand the gospel, if you don't believe it, then at that point you're either saying, God, you can't do it like you're weak, or you're saying, God, you won't do it. And that's like calling God a liar. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Maybe you'd like to make this decision for Christ. And if I could make it for you, I would, but I can't. And I suppose that's the beauty of the gospel You can't force it down someone's throat. Only you can call upon Christ. Would you there this morning in the quietness of your heart say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve the punishment death. But I thank you that you left heaven and you came to earth. That as a sinless person, you took my death penalty. And so I come to you today as a resurrected Lord. And I ask you to save me through the merits of what you did. Say it, mean it, believe it. God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. The Bible says, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you've saved me, out of gratitude, I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. Amen. Look up here. Maybe you prayed that prayer. You say, Pastor, are you supposed to have a particular feeling? No. Feelings can go up and down. It has nothing to do with a feeling. I was 18 years old when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I was in a classroom learning actually how to share my faith. 
And as I was learning how to share my faith, I realized I had no faith in Christ. I received him that night. I didn't feel any different, but I knew I was saved. A few hours later, I went back to my dorm room and I thought, I'm going to heaven. I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest. (laughs) I felt way up here. Suppose I woke up the next morning and I was sick as a dog and I had the flu. If I based my salvation on a feeling, I would have to conclude I mustn't be saved anymore. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is in a person, the Lord Jesus. Faith is not a work. Faith just is the channel that receives what Jesus did. Now, as you start growing, there are emotional aspects. The Spirit does bear witness with your spirit that you've been saved. You say, well, pastor, I'm saved. What do I do next? You make it public. Jesus said, if it's real on the inside, you'll be unashamed. Listen, walking the aisle of a Billy Graham crusader or church has never saved a soul. But Jesus' point is, if it's real in here, you'll be unashamed out here. You'll be willing to confess him, and that confession should ultimately take place through baptism. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection as we had in the last service. When we're baptized, we're saying, I'm going into heaven because of the death, burial, and resurrection. You say, well, what if I was baptized as an infant? There is no infant baptism in the Bible. I'll pay you $1,000 if you can show me one verse that teaches infant baptism. Man made that up 300 years later. They started baptizing little infants, later asking them to believe. It's just the opposite in the Bible. Believe and then be baptized. Go and make converts of all nations, then baptizing them. Look, water, I can't I be baptized? You have to first believe. It doesn't save you. It doesn't wash away sin. The thief on the cross, he went from cursing Jesus to confessing Jesus. Both men, Matthew records during those six hours, blasphemed him. But one had a change of heart in the course of six hours. I saw this video clip. It's out again this week. It just saddens me when I see it because he's a good man. Oh, this guy didn't know anything. He just said, Jesus saved me and Jesus. That could be so far from the truth. God only has one way of saving people. It's believing the gospel. These men probably were there for an insurrection, though we don't know that for sure. We know that was true of Barabbas. Most likely, at the least, they were Jewish, or they were possibly proselytes, but these men had a knowledge of Scripture. How do we know that? He turned to his friend and he said, this one, meaning Jesus in the middle of the cross, he's never done anything wrong. We're just getting what we deserve. He's sinless. We're sinners worthy of death. How do I know he meant that? Because of what he said next. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew what the scripture said, that when Messiah comes, he will not only die, he would rise again from the dead. He has a kingdom that it wasn't over for Jesus that day. We're like most crucified men. They just threw him in the valley of Hinnon, even if they covered dirt on him, and most of the time they didn't. He has a kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Was he baptized? No. If he could have been, he would have been. You can, and if you haven't been baptized since you've been saved, you should put it on the right side of your conversion. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning 
for the opportunity to be refreshed in the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would help us who know and love Jesus to be faithful stewards of it. We know one aspect of the judgment of the just in heaven for those who are saved will be how we dealt with the gospel you entrusted to us. So help us even in this week to find someone that we might share the good news with. And our Holy Father, I pray today for someone who made that decision, that you would give them the courage to confess Jesus openly, to say, he is my Lord, and I'm not ashamed of it. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand? You're here, and maybe you received Christ this morning. I want to give you a chance to make it public. You say, what does that involve? Well, you leave your seat, you come to the front row. You say, that's a little intimidated. Well, yes, it is. Jesus died publicly for you in nakedness and in shame. And he calls men and women publicly to confess him. He calls you to be baptized as a symbol. You say, I've been saved and baptized. You need a church. And if we can be that church, I want to invite you to come this morning and join with us. We'll not belabor the invitation, but if you have a decision, step out now and meet me here in the front. Matt, would you lead us? Would you come?